0: WBZ Original. It was my birthday last week, and my son's girlfriend very thoughtfully sent me a birthday present. It's a little book. It's called Do Animals Fart?
1: (laughs) She thought you would enjoy this book for your birthday. But she knew. She knew. (laughs) She knew. Everybody, welcome into Studio BZ, still Alston's number one podcast, as far as we're concerned. Season three, episode eleven, and we welcome back John Steller.
0: Yeah, hey, Liam, hey. Paula, did you miss me? You
1: did. Uh, I of did miss
2: you, and then you sent me a picture of your feet. <laughs> And then I no longer missed you. and I deeply
1: resent wearing,
2: wearing sandals. Wearing sandals, but you you Yes, I abhor both yes. the sandals and the film. And the, and the uh, So I appreciate the picture. Of revenge will be mine. And you were him
1: that you on day. Just think, think, of, point.
2: think of it as the agony of defeat.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, that's my kind of joke. I like that dad <laughs> joke, yeah. There's a lot here in the uh, podcast for John's return. We just spoke with the author of The Age of Light, Whitney Scherer. She is a local writer started at Grub Street's program as like a creative writing teacher, has written her debut novel and it touched off a bidding war among 14 publishers that eventually ended in a $1 million
0: deal. This book is superb. Paul and I both read it and we just talked with Wiki Sherr about it. Then, uh, if you're wondering what's on the minds of Massachusetts Democrats, the answer is plenty, especially the 2020 presidential race. Of course, we already have one Democratic candidate, Elizabeth Warren, maybe a second one, if Seth Moulton uh, gets gets off the chair and uh, makes a decision, and a Republican candidate. So the, the usual quota of multiple Massachusetts candidates. Anyway, we'll talk about what local Democrats are thinking as they uh, prepare for 2020 with the chair of the state Democratic Party, Gus Bickford. And then
2: just something that really annoyed me. Uh, <laughs> Once again, the, the annoyance of the week. The, this guy had this video, Tim Ferriss. He apparently has like 2 million Twitter followers. Huge, huge podcast. Name. Yeah. I did not know about him, but he had this video out about his his first 20 minutes. When he first wakes up, here's my 20-minute routine. And it was amazing in its level of entitlement and lack of recognition of what an average person goes through in their morning. And so we're going to talk about Tim Ferriss' little meditation video. Meow, Liam.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Really? Uh, And then we thought we would discuss briefly right here the breaking news today, which is that uh, 50 people have been charged in the largest college admissions scam ever prosecuted by the Department of Justice. Uh, This was announced by the U.S. attorney today in Boston. We are talking about CEOs, lawyers, uh, two famous actresses who you'll be hearing a lot about, Uh, all arrested in connection with this scam organized by the central figure William Singer, who essentially ran a quote-unquote college counseling service, but in the end really what happened was parents were paying him vast sums of money to exert his influence over faking SAT scores, having people Falsify SAT scores and have other people take the tests, but also using the access that college coaches have to certain slots for admission. And those coaches were essentially selling one or two slots. uh, And he knew this. And so he was getting the kickback. The coach was getting a massive bribe. Uh, And it just is the epitome of how atrocious entire college admissions process is in the United (laughs) States right now.
0: You mean to say, Paula, that people with big money... (laughs) their children have an edge getting Had into influence? top schools over the rest of us. I am
1: shocked. Mm. That's <laughs> I <told> you. <laughs> you. Just As someone said, just go look at the names on the buildings on any and average I've, campus. And I've
0: got a story for you when we get around to this mm. about exactly this kind of thing that's going to knock your we're, socks or, off. Well, we're getting on it. Talk, just jump right in. All parties will have to remain nameless of course. here, but trust me on this. I've this got one right real after deal. you. Uh, a friend of mine was once very active in funding fundraising for the top-tier university that he worked for. And toward this end, he traveled to New York City for a private dinner with 20 Mega millionaire mm-hmm. hedge fund types mm-hmm. at some fancy club. What New they
1: York. also always love to call the Wall Street gathering. Yeah, yeah
0: exactly. Right. So, very fancy dinner, uh, the, the dessert, the cigars are out. And uh, one of the gentlemen there says to my friend, Okay, let's cut to the chase. How much? So, I beg your pardon? How much is it going to cost me to get my kid into? this top-tier university that you would just fall off your chair if I told you what it was. So uh, my friend says, oh, listen, uh, Fred, that's not how it works. So they all kind of look at each other, and they burst out laughing. Come on, they say to him. How much? They
1: wanted a number.
0: They wanted a number right there on the spot. So he stops. This was some years ago, okay? He stops, he thinks, and he says, well, all right, if these guys want it, I'm going to give it to them. $20 will get you to the top of the stack for consideration. There's silence. Got the, the high rollers all <laughs> look at each mm-hmm. other. Some nodding breaks out. And finally, Fred says, uh, okay. Oh, oh <laughs> and sure. they all wrote checks mm-hmm. right there on the spot. Yeah. Did the kids get in? I can believe it. I, I, I don't know, but you can draw your own conclusions. <laughs> you
1: can imagine. It also, you know... It's really been agonizing for me and my family. I've been begging these universities to take my four children over the last 10-year period. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I've been intimately involved in the way things are right now. And it just is this complex combination of the, you know, godforsaken SAT scores or ACT scores, the student profile from the high school. But then you add in this whole athletic mix well, uh, you know, the private counselors, the coaches, and their relationships with the AAU coaches around mm. the country. Uh, is your kid a legacy? Did their parents go there? I mean, it just, it really, in the end, I would say, when you can really look at it from 10,000 feet and you're all done, in my experience, most kids ended up at the school that was right for them in terms of their academic performance, you know, Mm -hmm. the vast majority. But there are a few, and I would say, the thing that really ends up making your blood boil is when, um, and you know, my kids worked hard, did great, they were fine, I did not have like Ivy level students But they, you know, do fine. But I knew other kids who were. And and it's agonizing to watch a boy or girl who you've watched since sixth grade work so hard. And they're rejected by one Ivy or another. And even, you know, the other boy down the street who you know is not a top student gets in because they can throw or catch a ball. I mean, it just—you understand why the schools do it. They need their athletes, but it just makes you feel so bad for those kids who really deserve to go.
0: Let's be blunt about it, too. A lot of these schools—this is a gigantic scam. The Ivies don't mean bleep, Okay. Can I say bleep? Oh, on you, the are we
1: always used to show, you know, not that it's the measure of success, but the, the list of the Fortune 500 CEOs, I think it's only like not one of them went to an Ivy League school, you know, which is interesting. Like yeah. everybody is so invested in it. it
0: I mean, yes, it I'm sure indicate there are success. cases where the name on the diploma, the. The institution opens a door that wouldn't otherwise be open, but overall, it's just a bunch of total BS, and the people who bought into it, these people that may go to jail now, uh, Felicity Huffman Huffman, uh, and so forth. Uh, you know, they deserve every minute of hard time that I hope they wind up doing if they're convicted.
1: Head of a New York law firm. He'll for, be
0: disbarred. For buying into and perpetuating this complete utter BS mm. about these top-tier schools. Mm. Come on. Yeah.
1: Well, it's because it's it's I'm but just no, sitting over here Liam, just nodding. But Liam, a let me just brag about him for a second, stupendous student who completely got in on the merits uh from A public high school Mm -hmm. on the South Shore because you were Mr. Perfect, right? How would you have felt if you got rejected and you (laughs) knew one of your classmates got in for other reasons? It's
2: all a crapshoot, right? So what happens is you have different degrees of cheating to get in, right? I mean, you have the kids who have... Very few resources who just work and work and work to right. do their own SAT studying, as I did, and they try to get in. Then you have the next level up: parents who hire four, five hundred dollar an hour SAT tutors for their kids, and that inflates the kids' scores by two to three hundred points. I mean, you'll see gigantic swings, oh, and that's yeah. the difference between is, getting into a state school or getting into an Ivy. Yeah, the SAT is a
1: reflection of your socioeconomic status, yeah. not your. You have level other parents who have
2: tutors for their kids in specific subjects in school he's not doing that well in ap chemistry this year let's get him a tutor and then he he does better because of that so and then you have these people who are actually paying five hundred thousand dollars to have someone else take the asat but it's all various levels of kind of cheating or gaming the system at the very at the very least and it then leads to people who probably shouldn't be in that school being in that school um, but as you said, as a general rule, I feel like in my experience, I, I, most I of the kids like I knew they, got into up. about the school they should yeah. have gotten into. Yeah. And- I'll
1: tell you what else is unfair. You know, some kid is getting in because he's a great athlete and, you know, good for them. Uh, great, you know, musician. Yes. Uh, a lot of middle class B students won't get in because they're asking for financial aid, mm. and the kid with the same record will get in because they can pay the full. Well, that vote. is one thing that's great that's about the
2: Ivies is their resources problem. are so large; mm. they're need-blind. Yeah. So I, Once when I got, the got in, top they, it was whatever I needed, whatever financial aid I needed, they they was there.
1: You well, we will graduate. Yeah, right.
2: and
0: they use that, admittedly, good work that they do by providing scholarships as the exculpation for a myriad of sins. Sure, sure. I mean, this is the big justification for all the sleazy cheating and manipulation that also goes on. But, you know, Liam, you're the total exception. To all of these stereotypes, you don't exude entitlement. You work your butt off. You earn and deserve the respect of everyone who works with you. So un-Harvard. I, I, in fact, I want to I see the goddamn sheepskin just to prove you actually went there.
1: Oh, I'm so excited about this interview.
0: Yes.
2: Uh, Whitney Scherer, the author of The Age of Light is in with us. We're going to break this into two parts. Because uh, so we don't listen, want to wreck it. We don't want to wreck it for you. So the second part will have some spoilers if you've read the book and want some inside information about how Whitney helped uh, develop you know, develop these characters over time and how she did the research. Listen to that second part as well. Whitney Scherer, the author of The Age of Light, which has taken off like a rocket ship, 14 publishers bidding out for a million-dollar deal.
3: Would the U.S. 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 camera can fit, fit in, in the, the ball ball of, of, right of hand. hand.
2: Very excited about our next guest, a local author who must have one of the all-time great stories about her debut novel. Whitney Scherer has just released The Age of Light, an historical fiction about a real woman, Lee Miller, who was a model in the 1920s, a war correspondent in the 1940s. And this has just been named the most anticipated book of 2019 by Oprah.com. Whitney Scherer, thanks so much for coming on to Studio BZ. Very nice to meet you, and congratulations on the book.
1: Thank you. It's so nice to be here. It's great to have you. And uh, I I did want to start about your... Immediate inspiration for the book. This all emanated from a trip to the PBD Essex Museum. It did, in yeah, Salem.
3: yeah. In two thousand and eleven, they had an exhibit of Man Ray and Lee Miller's work called "Partners in Surrealism," and I knew about Man Ray because I'd studied photography um, in high school and college, but I'd never heard about Lee Miller. So I went to the exhibit and walked in and was just immediately captivated by just her amazing talent and all of the different things that she did in her life. So I walked through the exhibit and kind of got to know her and just found myself feeling so aggravated that I hadn't known about her before. Mm. She's just she's just immensely talented and seems to be a little bit in the shadow of um, her partner and yeah. lover, Man Ray.
2: So you start working on this book. You, you live in Arlington, right? I do, yeah. And you were working at this creative writing uh, website called Grub Street.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's actually a nonprofit creative writing center based okay. in downtown Boston that um, holds classes for people at all ages.
2: You had never written a book, uh, but you you worked for two years on The Age of Light, and when you went looking for an agent, you finished writing it. You go looking for an agent, something. Insane happened. What happened?
3: Yeah, well, sure. first I'll say I spent two years researching the book and five years writing it. Oh, okay. <laughs> seven years! I just w- have to say that because it's an epic amount of time. But, <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, so I spent like seven years working on it and then I finally, finally had revised it enough and it was ready to um, send it out to agents. And my dream agent had always been Julie Bearer, who I knew a little bit from my work at Grub Street and also because she represents a couple people that I am friends with. And so I sent it just to her. And and then uh, she sent an email back to me and said, oh, I'm very, I'm very busy. You know, it might be a little while before you hear from me. And I thought, oh, that's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got an email. <laughs> and then um, <clears throat> a couple of weeks after that, uh, I got an email from her that she wrote in the air on her way to Japan. She had finished my book on a on a flight to Japan and had to buy Wi-Fi on the plane so she could email me and tell me that she wanted to represent me because she oh. liked the book so much. <laughs> and then That's a so bidding great. war
2: begins among 14 different publishers. Yeah,
3: yeah. So she and I, uh, we did some revisions to the book over a couple of months, and then she sent it out, and there was an auction, uh, a 14-way auction. Wow. Yeah, which is pretty huge. <laughs> you know, when
1: you consider the stories we all hear about, about J.K. Rowling and other offers who had dozens and dozens and dozens of flat-out rejections. Yeah, yeah, that must have really been.
3: Thrilling. Oh, I'm. I mean, I'm still wrapping my head around it. <laughs> yeah, it oh, was the yeah. craziest thing that's ever happened.
1: So, so let me ask: When you say to yourself, "I'm fascinated by this topic," and I'm now going to go start research, and mm-hmm. it ended up being two years. Mm-hmm you still had no guarantee you didn't know that anyone would necessarily buy this book right so were you doing it in your free time what did it entail where did you go to do the research
3: yeah yeah so um, most of the research was was done by reading and looking at images um, so I read, Literally everything that's ever been written about Lee Miller (laughs) and Man Ray, and uh, also just trying to immerse myself in Paris in the 1930s and Mm -hmm. the Surrealist movement, and um, you know just everything, and you know of course also the food and the drinks and (laughs) (laughs) that sort of stuff as well. But um, but also I was using those two years to just uh, try to figure out if I could do justice to her story, uh, and you know get to know Lee Miller well enough that I could could write a book about her. So it took me a long time to feel confident in that, and. I mean, I think everybody's first book is just is just a passion project. and i was I was doing it on the side. I mean, part of I think why it took me so long is I was working full time, and my daughter was um well, she was two when I started researching. and, you know, she's nine and a half now. And <laughs> did you um, ever sleep? <laughs> I, I did. I love to sleep, actually. so I had to fit that in too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you can tell that it's a passion project because it's so descriptive and rich and you're right you talk about the food and the drinks in Paris and it all just comes to life on the pages this is a story as you're saying based on Lee Miller it's just this incredible story and as with you I had never heard of her mm-hmm. I had of course heard of Man Ray so many people had and it goes to tell you a lot about our society that we had yep. heard of him and not of her but tell us just in in brief terms who was Lee Miller
3: Yeah, so um, Lee was uh, a woman who was first a model for Vogue magazine, and she had a very successful modeling career, but she wasn't happy as a model, and she decided to give up her career and move to Paris in 1929 to pursue her dream of being an artist. So uh, first, she was a surrealist photographer, and she studied with, and then was um, the lover of Man Ray. Mm-hmm. And during her time with him, she uh, they jointly discovered uh, solarization, which is a really interesting photographic technique that uh, was very groundbreaking at the time. And she was making really incredible surrealist work. She then went on to be uh, an incredibly successful fashion photographer, and her photos appeared on the pages of Vogue where her modeling photos had, had appeared. And in fact, she actually shot self-portraits of herself that appeared in the magazine, mm. which is really interesting. And then um, – during World War II, she actually reinvented herself entirely and became one of the first female war correspondents. And she did that also for Vogue magazine, and she was sending back um, essays and photographs from the front lines. She was there at the siege of San Malo. Mm. She was there at the opening of the concentration camps at the end of the war. And perhaps most famously, uh, certainly most famously in the United States, she was um, she took a self-portrait of herself taking a bath in Hitler's bathtub mm. after yes. Hitler had yes. fled. Which leads Munich. to a very interesting
2: yeah. In the book, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, which yeah. was actually one of the first passages that I wrote when I was drafting the mm. novel. Yeah.
1: It is fascinating when you Google image her. Yeah. Uh, she has this, you know, sometimes you see pictures of someone from the 20s. They have that sort of old, timey, distant look. Mm. She has such a modern face. Mm. You can see a lot of, you know, contemporary actresses could portray her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she
3: does look really modern. She has a look in her eye. You yep. know, or <laughs> you can always
1: feel her saying like, eh, I'm made of more than this. You know, <laughs> I know, just a pretty face.
3: I think she was ahead of her time in all ways. Yeah. You know, in how she looked and also how she acted.
1: I Fascinated, when you write uh, historical fiction about actual people and their relationship in every way, sexual, uh, emotional, how do you put yourself there, you know? you know you're writing about real people, and clearly you are inventing their dialogue and everything that transpires between them. How do you kind of approach that and decide you're going to have permission to do that?
3: Yeah, it's such an interesting question, and it's something that I think every writer of historical fiction thinks about deeply, and I certainly did. And um, what I did was you know, as I was researching the book, I was getting a sense of who the characters were as real people. And then, of course, I ended up fictionalizing all sorts of things that happened in the novel that, you know, I didn't read about. But... In every case, what I wanted to do was, um, you know, for myself, be able to draw a line from a fact that I had read to something that I have them doing or saying in the novel huh. that so that it felt like it was in character to who they were. Mm. And certainly that's an artistic choice, you know, that I'm making. Sure. And, and um, you know, but but I feel confident that I kind of stayed true to them and, and brought them to life in a way that I think does justice to yeah. who they really were. Mm. When it
1: comes to sexual intimacy, do you yeah. just decide, hey, you know, I'm just going to make this thing up?
3: Yeah. Well, you know, I think Man Ray and Lee Miller— I think they were very sexual people, and I think that whole time period in Paris actually was just, you know, really sexy, and so I actually wanted the book to kind of have a lot of sex in it, just because I think sometimes in historical fiction, you get the Idea of sex, and then you just get like longing glances across the ballroom, right, <laughs> and then right. you know the next chapter. So I didn't, yeah. I didn't want this novel to work like that. <laughs>
2: you wanted to be a little more real.
1: Sure.
3: Yeah, I did. Um,
2: <laughs> Lee and Man Ray eventually fall in love. They have this whirlwind romance, um, and then it and then it pretty quickly falls apart. Mm-hmm. Partly because Lee wants more independence, and partly because Man Ray is kind of controlling. And then there are certain things each of them do that are pretty terrible to the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, Lee, at some point, and in, in several times during the course of the book, says she feels she's incapable of love. Why is that, do you think? Why does she feel that way?
3: I think a lot of it stems from uh, early childhood trauma that she experienced, and um, yeah. this was an aspect of the book that I wanted to really get right. Um, mm. And she was raped as a child when she was seven years old by a family friend, and then she was also... Um, photographed in the nude by her father starting at the age of eight all the way into her 20s -hmm. and i think that kind of double trauma that she experienced affected her in in every way but certainly affected her in her ability to um begin and then maintain romantic relationships with people Mm -hmm. yeah um liam
1: points out that there's a scene in the book when you talk about terrible things that she does. She says some something really horrible to a good friend of theirs and then that character says to her, we've worked together for how long now and what do you know about me? You never seem very interested in anyone but yourself. Yeah. In your research of her, was she a very egotistical person?
3: Yeah, I read, um, I read a bunch of things about how she had trouble um, becoming friends with women and mm. other women would say she was kind of self-obsessed. And I think that... I think if you are that beautiful um, and you know how to use your beauty to get what you want, I think self-obsession might kind of go hand-in-hand mm. hand with that. Mm. And so, you know, I wanted to portray that side of her. I think mm. she was a really complicated person. And mm. I don't think she wanted to be self-obsessed. But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like many people can sometimes yeah. be, she she was.
2: But, I was, I was yeah. not it, – it's interesting because I found myself both – Respecting what she did and the fact that she was able to do it in a man's world, mm-hmm. both literally and yeah. in terms of the man's mm-hmm. world, um, but also I I wasn't all that fond of her. Did did would you want to be her friend or would you not want to be Lee Miller's friend in, in this portrayal of her?
3: I I think she would. Be one of those people who you're very drawn to. And then also you're kind of like, ah, get over yourself (laughs) sometimes. Someone you
1: couldn't rely on necessarily. Yeah,
3: exactly. But I think Mm. she was – I think she would have been really interesting and really fun to go out drinking with. (laughs) Right. Well, it's just interesting Mm. because
2: I wondered as I was reading it, was I frustrated by her because I'm a man?
1: Yes. Or was I – no, I'm serious. Or was I
2: frustrated by her because – she does some lousy right. things, and I yeah. wondered if if it was if it would have been read totally differently mm. by a woman than by a man. And so I was curious to, well, to well, get like, your reaction. I, I to that. saw
1: that you put that down in the notes that we were discussing yeah. this, right. and I thought of that when um, there's the section of the book where uh, he has. Really submitted her work man to a has. competition mm-hmm. and left her name off of it. And mm-hmm. his view of it is she works for him, so that's okay to do. The, from the reader's perspective, you're like you're outraged mm-hmm. that he would do that. And um, I was outraged. That she, he had done that. Yes, but also, <laughs> but it, it is interesting because she does react. I think the way a man would mm. when mm. she comes right back at him and she's like, "No, I I want the credit. Mm-hmm. I want my name on it." And is that part of what you think? Like, she didn't mm. react in, like, the typical mm-hmm. uh, way a woman in I a story she, would. I think she
2: was rightfully outraged by what mm. Man Ray did in that moment. There were there were other aspects of her character that, again, I just wondered, if this were a man, yeah. mm. and I was just trying to be as self-reflective as possible, yeah. would it not bother me as much? Would this just be, oh, uh, that's just how some powerful men acted?
3: Huh. Uh, that's or, so interesting. Nobody's asked that question in exactly that way yet. Mm. I, I do think... You know, I wanted it to be something that people could talk about, whether or not she, you know, is, is likable for, for yeah. you know, for lack of a better word. Um and 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 I don't think she completely is. And I think in their relationship, I think both of them were at fault and both of them betrayed each other in in ways so, you know, I think you could read it one way and feel sorry for Lee, and read mm-hmm. it in another way and feel sorry for Man Ray, and um and I think that that's how the relationship really was. I think they both were, were hurting each other uh, kind mm-hmm. of equally. I'm mean, going to have to think about whether or not, you know, if she were a man, if 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 uh, people would react differently. That's, yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah. I'm just curious <laughs> yeah. if men yeah. in
2: general have said to you— I don't really like this character, even though I like the book. And if women have said, yes, no, I really like her, and she was fighting for herself. And... It
3: doesn't seem to yeah. be drawn across gender lines in that way. Yeah, so I've definitely had women say that they, you know, oh, I was so frustrated by her. I just wanted her to stop self-sabotaging or stop right. being... She does do know. a lot of self-sabotage. She does, yeah, yeah.
2: If you don't mind, we'd like to have you read one section from the book. Um, it's 1943, Lee's friend Dave, who is also a war correspondent, is trying to convince her to ask her employer, Vogue, to send her into the war to cover it. And Lee responds, um, and I'd love for you to read that passage if you wouldn't mind.
3: Sure. Lee laughs, a harsh sound in the quiet room. Me, a soldier. No, I'll be stuck here, knitting socks or holding scrap drives for the war effort. And then the tears really do spill over. Lee pretends to be coughing so she can wipe at her eyes, but Dave has seen them and moves to hold her. He thinks she's crying over him, and since it doesn't matter, she lets him. A few days later, Lee is still thinking about what Dave said. Why couldn't she? She even floats the idea by Audrey to see if Vogue would publish her pictures. Audrey is noncommittal, but says that if Lee could write some articles to accompany the photos, maybe they could do it. Lee makes the call, fills out the forms. Four weeks later, she gets her papers. She'll be a war correspondent just like Dave, traveling with the 83rd Division. A few days after that, she is fitted for her uniform, olive drab pants with a button fly, olive shirt, wool jacket thick as a horse blanket and just as flattering. The second she puts on the uniform, she loves it, how shapeless it makes her, how little of her skin she can see beneath all the layers. Before they leave London, Lee makes Dave get out his camera. She buttons her jacket to the collar, stands near a window so her U.S. lapel pins catch the light, doesn't smile, doesn't try to look alluring for the first time in her life she doesn't need to. Hmm.
2: It seems like such an important passage in that it's establishing here's this woman, she was a model for Vogue in the 1920s and now she's got her own career and her looks have nothing to do with what she's mm. about to go do.
3: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I I think that is really how she felt. She she wrote about how she loved having a uniform that and you know being out with a regiment and having them not even realize that she was a woman when they first met her and how happy that made her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This has been a pleasure. Studio
0: What does it mean to be a Massachusetts Democrat in 2019? Uh, I think we're going to learn a lot more about what it means to be a Democrat generally as the 2020 presidential race unfolds. But let's uh, take a little more of a of a local angle on what the Democratic Party and Democrats stand for with our guest, Gus Bickford. He's been chairman of the Mass Democratic Party since 2016. And uh, Gus, could you have picked a, uh, uh, a more turbulent time in terms of the overall political climate? Did you, did you know what you were getting into?
4: I had no idea what I was getting into with this president, no. And uh, I will tell you what I've said to many other people, which is I couldn't be in a better place. I would have uh, had problems every day uh, not having the realization that I can actually make a difference. And so I've relished uh, the amount of time I've spent on the road working with many activists, many activist organizations, just trying to, you know, get the – Get the word out there that there there has to be another way to do these things.
0: Has the onset of Trump meant in Massachusetts more volunteers, more donations, more democratic activity?
4: Yes. Uh, Massachusetts has always been very active uh, and has Uh, was alluded to in a a television segment. You know, we've basically had presidential candidates for generations. Um, That being said, uh, the new activism that we see, the new people that have been getting involved in politics, um, and we're seeing some of them now as new state representatives, um, all came from the day after the inauguration, the Women's March. Uh, People believed that, well, you know something? It's time. I, I have let other people do it. I need to step in. Um, and and that is definitely—continues to move forward, the energy, the activism. Um, and in Massachusetts, I think that we continue to lead um, with that type of energy.
0: I haven't had a chance to really talk with you uh, since the election. Uh, a lot of people were shocked when Ayanna Presley took out Mike Capuano in the congressional primary last fall. Were you shocked?
4: I was—I— Was not shocked because I knew Ayana. I did not expect – I didn't know what the results would be. So for me to say that I I was surprised – I was surprised she won just because you didn't really know going into it. That being said – um, I know the district well. Uh, I was involved when Mike Capuano first got elected. I worked for a different candidate. Um, the district changed uh, underneath him, and I think we see much more of a reflection of what the district looks like uh, in Ayanna Presley, um, And she's been a la- la- leader in our front. So um, I think we're very lucky to have her, lucky to have her voice uh, in D.C., lucky to have our voice here in Massachusetts. Um, we, we need to continue to have diverse in gender and, and, and race uh, in background. Uh, we need that voice. And, and she definitely, with Lori Drahan, continues to you know make our congressional district look more like the electorate.
0: Let's talk a little bit about what's going on up on Beacon Hill. Uh, again, referencing the uh, primary elections last fall, you had... A couple of uh, members of House Speaker Robert DeLeo's leadership team get knocked out in their primaries by candidates who I think can fairly be described as to the left of of them. Not that they were, they were certainly you know progressive candidates themselves. Um, what, if anything, did that tell us, or or did it tell us nothing beyond the unique circumstances of those races?
4: I actually look at it quite differently. It told us that, you know, because I've never been in favor of term limits, it, you know, and, and have in the past answered, well, we already have term limits. They're called elections. Right. And, and I think that that's what it told us. I, I think the two leadership positions um, that Byron Rushing Um, And Jeff Sanchez uh, that lost, I think, lost for different reasons. So definitely, I think, with Sanchez, that was a statement as, you know, we need to, you know, move forward and move forward on some of the issues. And as chair of Ways and Means, we weren't seeing that. And his district is one of the most— Uh, Progressive and diverse in the country. Uh, With uh, John Santiago, who who, uh, beat Byron, Uh, he actually is a member of the Democratic uh, State Committee uh, and has been uh, one of the key people in our public policy. He's been around for years, and uh, he just, for me, I think he was very hungry, and he just decided he needed to win this thing, and he went out and won it. The candidate who beat Jeff Sanchez, Nica Mm. Elguardo, has been sharply critical of the
0: Democratic Party here, claiming that... It's basically, it's a white boys club,
4: to yeah, paraphrase so I, what I, she
0: said. What, what did you make of that? Well,
4: actually, I've been on television. It, it, she's been the most critical of the Democratic Party during the 90s under Bill Clinton. So it was more the National Democratic okay. Party. Uh, and she pointed out that a generation of, of her peers, so the males that were growing up at that time, were put away because of the three-strike policy. Uh, and she's very... she's very you know that is why we have put through the reforms that we have uh, with criminal justice because she's right you know we the three strikes policy disproportionately affected the african-american youth because of the type of economy drugs and you know especially now that marijuana is legal i'm sure those people that were put away for the 10 12 um, some odd years are are looking at uh, you know how um, that uh, was not fair to them Um, she also pointed out, though, that the leadership, so not the leadership of the mass Democratic Party, but many of the people in power because she was running against uh, the Ways and Means chair, worked against her in the primary. The Dem- mass Democratic Party itself stays neutral in Democratic primaries, so we were not at all uh, involved. Um, we did provide trainings for both candidates. We provided trainings uh, for her campaign. So in that extent, we got involved. But, yep. So you have to differentiate the two. Okay,
0: but it, it's no secret that you know, House Speaker DeLeo has been under fire for some time from the sort of the left wing of the party for allegedly not being aggressive enough on fiscal issues, in this case for pushing for new taxes or new revenues, not aggressive enough in promoting diversity, that kind of thing. I mean, is, is, is there still room for a Bob DeLeo in the Mass
4: Democratic Party? Very much so. I mean, the, the, the other side to that is is that he was the Ways and Means chair that put through two taxes that later on, on ballot, were repealed, so his uh, point to people would be, "Hey, we have to do this right because we've tried this." Uh, and then they were then repealed by a ballot law. I think, and you see, when you see the new leadership that he's put in place in the House, but also in the Senate, um, they're looking to try to figure out where to get these new revenues so that they will be there for good. Um, I think when it comes to you know the basically the GreenWorks program that they've put forward, one billion over ten years. Um, very much like the biosector, I think that that will help us with climate change. Um, does that mean we can be more aggressive? Yeah, we need to. I would love to see us uh, be more aggressive and find, uh, you know, new funding, um, specifically with transportation. I think we're looking at the debate wrong. Uh, I commute from outside 495. I also believe that a T-Fair hike is bad primarily because I'd like to see more people riding the T to get the Ubers and Lyft cars off the highway so that those of us that actually have to drive in, you know, have that space. I'd like more parking in the commuter rail facilities, uh, you know, in in the regional transit system so that I can take regional transit. I can't take a train after 8.15 or 8.30, all the parking lots are full.
0: Well, uh, in the meantime, just recently on Beacon Hill, the millionaire's tax is back. This was the proposal in the form of a ballot question that got thrown out by the state Supreme Court in the run-up to the election last year. Um, But it's back. It's been refiled as a legislative amendment by a couple of legislators, and that they believe will bypass some of these legal issues. Well, it takes
4: care of the the argument that, you know, you can't uh, delegate the... uh, distribute the money in a ballot question, the House uh, has to be the authority to do that. Is that going to be a winning issue for Massachusetts Democrats next year? I think very much so. I think when it comes to the income disparity that we all see across the country, but even here in Massachusetts, uh, it makes sense to look at the top, you know, 2%, 5% and, you know, have them pay a little bit more. Um, and, And it Goes overwhelmingly in polling. People look at that as being a successful way to achieve some of the games we need to you know achieve as we move forward.
0: Well, Gus, let me finish by bringing us back to the national story here. Uh, your counterpart at the national level, Tom Perez, the chairman of the DNC, came out with a debate plan uh, recently that, if you don't mind my opinion, sounds to me like one of the worst ideas I've ever heard. There will be. Every month beginning in June, just a couple months from now, there will be uh, up to 20 candidates debating in two separate segments of 10 each, if there are that many who meet, what appear to me to be relatively low uh, qualifications to be on the debate stage. I believe it's... uh, uh, 1% support or more in three different polls, having raised uh, uh, funds from 60,000 donors in 30 states, so certainly doable for somebody with some web savvy and, and some money. Uh, this strikes me as a formula for complete disaster. And let me just finish my argument here and then and you can respond to it. Unlike the Republican debates back in 2016, where there was a grown-ups table and a kids table separated out by polling, there won't the, the Democrats won't be doing that. It'll be drawn, you'll, you'll draw lots. So basically, a no Hoper candidate could wind up on the debate stage with the top tier Democrats with every incentive, it seems to me to pull a Donald Trump to make the debate all about them, to attack, and uh, turn
4: the thing into a circus. What are your thoughts? I look at it differently. I think that it's great that we've come out with the rules this far in advance. Uh, I also have a a, a bit of uh, a a, a different understanding. I believe that those rules are for the first two debates. Uh, I think that they change after that. Oh, Um, really? To what? Do you know? um, No, I'm not. I I think as we move forward and and the other debates get announced, you'll you'll get a a foundation for how people make the debates. But this takes care of an issue that we did faith in 2016, which is, you know, who is it that gets access to the debates? Um, And so I'm glad we came out with it early because that transparency is everything with the electorate. Um, And I think it will be very interesting, these first two debates. One thing I don't understand is, and I
0: don't know if the RNC does this too, I guess they do, they insist on controlling the debates. You know, here in in state politics, media organizations propose debates, candidates accept or not as they choose. It's not controlled by you at the state party. Um, and the rule is that, I guess, if a candidate accepts a debate that hasn't been sanctioned, you're, you're confined to purgatory. You're not allowed into other debates. I, again, I question the wisdom of that. I mean, uh, for instance... Not to be self-serving here. I'm I I never do that, right, Jonathan Case? No. Not at all, he's saying works. he's shaking his head. No. No hesitation there. Um, you know, I would definitely be willing to host a forum with just three or four of, of the more interesting Democratic candidates and and, and, and I think well, that might be informative to viewers. Well, it's inter- Why shouldn't that happen?
4: Well, it's, uh, I think it's interesting how you just worded it, because I actually think you can hold a forum. I, I don't think you can hold the debate. But you can have them in the same event if they come and participate individually.
0: I, I think it's a fair prediction that in June, when the first Democratic debates or two nights of debates occurs, it's gonna be the biggest political news of the moment. It's gonna suck up all the oxygen. It might even distract from what's going on in Trump world.
4: Is that really to the benefit of the party? Very much so. Uh, I believe that we need to get to the debate back about the issues that really are where we're gonna move the country forward. Um, I mean, some of what we have seen in the last two weeks, the last five days, Um, There is going to be an incredible amount of disruption, I think, in this presidency. I think with the investigations going forward with some of the news that we've recently found out about only because they've been able to testify publicly. Um, You know, we're, we're in a really interesting stage, and I've mentioned this before. This is the biggest challenge our Constitution has faced, and these candidates are going to be able to bring it back and let the electorate know that there's hope, we will be back um, to having a more—you're not going to have to worry every day when you wake up as to what our president's done. Um, one of these people will bring us back into an even keel and moving forward as a great country that we have always been and will continue to be.
0: Gus Bickford, chairman, Massachusetts Democratic Party. Thanks for joining us on Studio BZ. Thank you so much for having
3: me. Creativity combined with innovations and in technology—
2: on Twitter, uh, just a cesspool as as it generally is the other day, and come across a real cesspool uh, piece of content, uh, Tim Ferriss, who might otherwise be fantastic, he wrote the the four the day four week, day work
1: week which he's I think is guru. is a
2: great idea, uh, but he's also he's kind of this strange guy he's got his hands in a lot of different things he's an angel investor, he's a mixed martial artist I think or a kickboxer, and um has just had a very interesting career, but he put out this video for Business Insider about why is it that I'm so productive? And he says, basically, the premise is I'm so productive because I start my day
5: like this. Step number one, I wake up and I meditate for 20 minutes, typically 22 minutes. It's 20 minutes of seated, transcendental meditation. It could be Vipassana, it could be headspace, and then two minute decompression period where I sit there and let my mind do whatever it wants to do. I get up. brew tea very frequently oolong tea or some combination of say turmeric ginger and pu'er. that's another favorite and then i sit down to journal and there are two different types of journaling that i do depending on the day uh, for different purposes one would be morning pages where i'm effectively vomiting my brain onto the page to trap my monkey mind in print so that it doesn't bother me for the rest of the day so you're Viewing life through a lens of positivity <laughs> then there are a few questions related or prompts I should say related to focal points for the day <laughs> Ideally immediately after that I'm having a small amount to eat and then I would go into exercise of some type that exercise could be oh my God. Riding on a, on a peloton bike and doing a 20-minute hit workout high-intensity interval training or it could be yoga, or it could be weight training, or working on a Concept 2 rower. Uh, and that would be a generally no more than 60 to 90 <laughs> minutes in length, sometimes as short as 20 minutes. Uh. And then shower, off to the day.
2: Oh, that's all. That's
5: all he does. Wow.
2: Before, this the first thing he does when he wakes up. John, that must have been two hours of stuff that he does. By that time, I have changed two diapers, minimum of two yeah. diapers. I've made breakfast for my kids. I've showered, I've gotten myself ready for the day. The kids have had a couple of fits here. Hang I mean, on, how did, does he this? Do wait a minute, wait a minute.
1: When did you journal?
2: Oh my gosh, I didn't journal today. My monkey brain never got vomited <laughs> onto the you page. You know, I can <laughs>
0: relate to the vomiting part. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Particularly if it's a
0: Sunday morning. <sighs> and I maybe had that second beer the night. Oh my gosh, that was even better than I remember it being. Well, let's go around the table here, um, and I want to hear about your morning routines. Um, I'll get it started. How's okay. you, you
1: go nice? ahead, John.
0: I How much first oolong of all, tea is involved?
1: And turmeric. <laughs> well, I wake to the
0: sensation of Buddy the lab pawing at me. Yes, as she looms over me on the bed. You meditate over that. Get my sorry ass out of there and start tending to her needs. And then I have a short but intense burst of exercise as I pat the bed in a 100% vain effort to get her to lie down and curl up so I can go back to sleep. Then after that fails, I get up and sit on the edge of the bed and wait for the dizziness to pass that comes from either old age or the nightmares I had during the night or both. Then it's off to the bathroom for sometimes as much as 90 minutes, depending on what else is going on. Depending
2: on how enlarged the prostate is that exactly, morning. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Uh, then it's downstairs for 14 to 17 cups of coffee.
2: Okay, good. Right.
0: right. I mean, seriously, if The
2: Onion produced I a video know. and they said, we're going to do a video about, um, you know, some hipster guy. Yeah. They could not have come even close to the level of... Well, outrageousness. I, of, I don't know what that... All I
1: could think of was my very, um, you know, depression-era dad who was the father of <laughs> multitudes of children and ran a medical practice. Yeah. He would say, the alarm goes off, I get up, I pour a pot of coffee yeah. down my throat and I'm yeah. in the operating yeah. room by 7.30 yeah. after maybe looking at the front of the globe. Yeah. I mean, you know, somebody of that age. Well, you know, by just, the way,
2: Tim Ferriss went to St. Uh, Paul's school. I, he grew up with a certain level of, again, entitlement and resources. He has no kids. So, of course, he's well, going like, to meditate life. for 30 minutes and drink oolong tea. Kind of born exercise. with a
0: silver anima. <laughs> of...
1: <laughs> he's a very uh, new agey, uh, deliberate person, yeah. as we yeah. could see. And well, his, his whole thing he talks about his new book is something about mentors, a collection of, mentor. he, Tribe of mentors. Tribe of mentors. He interviews on his The Tim Ferriss Show. His favorite thing is to talk to experts in whatever their field is to find out from them. Like you know, why they're so good. Yeah. Why they became such an expert. So I like I admire his wanting to seek out people who are really the best of the best at what they do. Mm-hmm. But uh this then perhaps for Liam was a bridge to well, the
0: idea that this is useful advice for yeah. you schlubs out
1: there. Well, That's really that what I mean <laughs> is that
0: yeah, for, yeah. for Tim Ferris. Yeah. Who,
4: you know,
2: is a multi-millionaire author and that's what he does is he focuses on these things and he podcasts and that's his day. He doesn't have kids to rear and do all that. Then this might actually be a super healthy way to go about your life. I'm sure it is. I'm sure he's happy and centered and all that stuff. Just this notion that they push this out is here's how you can be more productive. To the rest yeah. of us schlubs, well, it's right. Like, he
1: does say, "Yeah, this is why I'm I'm so productive."
2: It's like, yeah, right. That's the that's the premise. Because this is why I'm productive because I drink oolong tea and meditate oolong. and vomit my monkey brain <laughs> yeah. when I journal. Which, by the way, when did journal become a is verb? Is there a
1: definition? No, seriously. Oh, when did
2: journal become a oh, verb? Absolutely. Yes. Is oh, journaling. That, come journaling come yeah. is a when. When um, did that
1: happen? It's up there with summer as a verb. <laughs> um, summer, it's it's free
0: explaining. <laughs> you know what I mean? Explaining.
1: Yeah. it reminds me of, did you ever watch the old show L.A.
0: Law? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was, I don't know if this was in the opening or if I just saw it in one episode, but there was a sequence involving, you know, the super handsome lawyer who drove the sports car. I think the actor's name was Corbin Burnson. Yes, Corbin Bernson. I forget his character's name, mm-hmm. but there's a sequence that showed the start to his day and it's just the alarm going off with new age chimes or something yeah, yeah. and he's waking up in his uh you know spectacular house up in the in the in the Hollywood Hills overlooking LA and he gets up and stretches there and the bed next to him is the stunning supermodel of of, of the evening yes. uh he lets her sleep while he goes in uh, and, you know, does his workout, then uh-huh. dives into the infinity pool yeah, on his yeah. deck for a few brisk <laughs> laps. It just goes on and it's on from It's very California. Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: I did look it up, uh, if this is to be believed. Uh, the um, monkey brain is a Buddhist term. Of course it is. I Meaning unsettled, animal. restless, capricious, whimsical, fancy, confused, indecisive, uncontrollable part of the brain. Yeah. So, is so he when he's
0: vomiting up, is he vomiting up his monkey
1: brain? It's monkey mind, no, I think he he's, he's,
0: he's writing out
1: your his monkey brain thoughts. thoughts. And, uh, that
2: was, uh, you know, his metaphor. Well, look, to each their own. Don't we all agree? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, to each his own. Just don't tell me that that's how I'm going to be more productive. Because again, <laughs> he's well, just saying two minutes into my meditation, my kids are jumping on the bed. But well, well, Liam, the moral of breakfast. the
0: story is for you,
2: which is get the hell off Twitter.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> I agree
2: with that.
1: No, it produces so much content. It Lord.
2: does. It really does. It really does.
1: Well, uh, we've taken quite a journey mm. from Paris in the 1920s to, to monkey brain farting. John's morning routine <laughs> vomiting. Uh, vomiting. So, give us a rating and review. I'm a little f- afraid of that this week, but <laughs> subscribe and share. Our Twitter handle is at Studio Pod. I'm at Paula Evan WBZ. At
2: Keller at Large. And while you're listening, grab a, te- a cup of oolong tea. Yeah. Uh, meditate a little, journal, if you will. Um, journal us, at Liam Bring WBZ. Bring
1: yourself to centeredness. Yeah.
2: Get on that Peloton and yes. get out of the town. the Peloton
1: bike, <laughs> yeah.
0: Get over yourself.
1: <laughs> 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 and Liam, your Twitter handle?
2: Uh, at Liam WBZ. People right. can journal me there.
1: Give us your just, and just Just vomit out your monkey brain. And us, relentlessly,
0: Liam. without fail, speaking of vomiting, we'll, we'll be, be seeing, seeing you. Again. By the
2: way, have you seen the Twitter
1: handle of the guy making fun of the Peloton bike ads?
2: Oh gosh, this is so funny! Oh my God,
1: you have to see this.